0: This is a HeadGum Podcast.
1: Hello, this is Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. I apologize for the sound quality of the intro here. I'm recording this in my family's home, and despite being filled with love and just... So many A-plus chachkis, for some reason, they do not have a professional audio setup. Don't worry, because the actual interview portion of this episode was recorded with, you know, mites and everything. And, and don't worry, because this episode is very good, and I love it. it. It's with stand-up comedian and writer Emily Heller. I can't remember when we first met. It might have been at a panel seven years ago around the release of Yale Cohen's oral history about women in comedy, We Killed. But I've known Emily for a while now, and as in many ways, our careers in comedy—hers in performing, mine in reporting—paralleled each other. We both started in San Francisco and then moved to New York around the same time. We both found larger and larger platforms around the same time. Eventually, she moved to LA to write, which most recently has led her to a gig working on HBO's Barry. I don't know, maybe it's because of the timing, but Emily and I have always seemed to have similar ways at looking at comedy and what a stand-up should put into and get out of their work. Because I've seen so much of her journey, where it led Emily in terms of how she worked on her last special, Ice Snickers, which came out earlier this year on Comedy Central's YouTube channel, and where she is now with her stand-up, fascinated me. So, as I said, this is a very good episode and I love it. The truck you're about to hear, which is also available on her album Pasta, is one of the highlights of the hour, as it's both so, so funny, as well as captures just so much of where Emily has been the last few years in her life. To to Emily, and to me, it's it's everything that stand-up should be. So, here is Emily Heller.
0: I know I need to work out more than the zero I have been. Uh, It's very hard for me to motivate, though, because as soon as I put on workout clothes... I feel done, right? I'm already cosplaying as an exerciser. You know, like what more do I need to do? The only reason I want to work out is so my pants will fit. If you get me in spandex, we did it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mission accomplished. Once I'm wearing workout clothes too, I never want to leave the house because I know how I look in them. It's an indoor look. I kind of think only fit people can look good in workout clothes. It's not because they're hotter than me. We all know they aren't. It's just that only fit people look self-actualized when they're wearing workout clothes, right? You see a fit person in workout clothes, you think, oh, she's doing what she wants to do with her life, right? You see me in workout clothes and it's just like, oh, someone had a talk with her. Probably a doctor. Today is her worst day. Every day is January 2nd for me in workout clothes. I can't look like I'm having a good time. That's why when I do exercise, I just wear a hospital gown. Cause I don't want people to think I'm trying to better myself. I want them to think I am already beating the odds. In a true sign of the apocalypse, I did join a gym this year. Um, I joined for what I think is a pretty unusual reason. I joined because at the age of 32, I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. Uh, Maybe soon I'll get my braces off, get my period, who knows. (laughs) But I've been reading more about it in very short spurts. And (laughs) it turns out that one of the things that's supposed to really help with ADHD is regular exercise, which was devastating news. (laughs) Because I know empirically that I will not work out for the sake of my body, but it turns out I will do it for my brain. Uh, (laughs) My brain is very important to me. It's where all my tweets come from. You know, my brain gives me gifts my body never has. Like my brain gave me this the other day. It's a new theme song for the TV show, Frasier, but it's set to the tune of the theme song for the TV show, Friends. <laughs> Don't worry, I am gonna sing it. Um, so it's like, so no one told you you were Dr. Frasier Crane. Your job is talking on the phone to the insane. It's like you're always stuck in second cheers. Anyway, so. So you see why I need to—you see why I need to keep this machine running at 100% um, for the good of the country. Uh, so I joined a gym. My gym membership came with a free personal training session, and I was like, "Oh well, that sounds like that sucks." Uh, <laughs> But I also don't know how to do anything there, so I was like, maybe I can just use that time to learn how to use the machines without bonking my head, and then I'll never have to talk to another human being at the gym for the rest of my life. So I told him that when I got there, and it was a him because I didn't get to choose. Uh, And he was like, I totally get it, but first we do need to do a questionnaire about your fitness goals. And I was like, oh, I feel like it should be clear from that last thing I said that I do not have fitness goals. My fitness goal was to join the gym, and I did that already, so I kind of feel like taking the rest of the year off. What I'm saying is, I'm not going to do good on this quiz. Is there an SAT back there I could take? I'd rather do that right now. And he was like, no, it's not that big of a deal. All it is is you just tell me what it is that you were hoping to get out of this. And I was like, okay, okay. Um, I guess I would like to improve my posture, my stamina, my general energy level. (laughs) And he goes, okay, great, and your goal weight? And I was like, oh, uh, not applicable. (laughs) And he was like, he was like, you don't wanna lose weight? And I was like, no, I do not. And he got this look on his face that told me that what he was thinking was, but I can see you. Uh... (laughs) But I wasn't trying to be snarky. I wasn't trying to cram my feminism down his throat. I'm genuinely not interested in losing weight. That's not why I was there. I used to want to do that when I was a much younger woman, and then what happened was I gained 40 pounds, and then I started making a lot of money and having a lot of sex. And... (laughs) Listen, I'm not saying the weight is why that happened, but I also don't want to jinx it. (laughs) And what would I stand to gain from being skinny anyway? Just being too hungry to enjoy the money and sex? No thank you. (laughs) And he goes, okay, but what are your fitness goals? And I was like, posture, stamina, energy. And he was like, and you don't want to lose weight. And I was like, no, I do not. And he was like, but you have to be specific with me about your fitness goals. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Um, Leg posture, Uh, butt stamina, hand energy. Is that specific enough? I have ADHD. I really can't sit here that much longer. And he goes, okay, but like, looking in the mirror, there's nothing you wanna change. I was like, I don't know, maybe the person I'm talking to right now. <laughs> and he goes, okay, let me, let me put it this way. If you lost weight, would that be okay with you? And at that point, it was clear to me that he was not going to let me leave there until I admitted to him that I was Slimer from the Ghostbusters. (laughs) So I decided to throw him a bone. I was like, okay, I'll give you this. Ever since I gained weight, I've got a bit more meat in my neck. It's made breathing a little bit more difficult (laughs) from certain angles. I guess if that improved, I'd be fine with it. And he looked so relieved. (laughs) He was like, okay, so we want to lose some weight. And he wrote it down, and the quiz was over. Isn't that insane? I'm still so mad about it. I'm not mad at him. I'm mad at me, you know? Because I missed an opportunity to just walk in there and be like, my goal weight, this plus 500. (laughs) Yeah. I want to gain 500 pounds, but... I only want to gain it from the waist up. I need my legs to stay the same size. I want to be a perfect sphere, same size legs. What I'm saying is I want to look like the sexy green M&M. Can you make that happen for me? I will not be happy until you can roll me out of here Willy Wonka style. And if you can't make that happen for me, I'll find a gym that can. Maybe a... Maybe a curves, maybe a curve singular, because I do just want to be the one curve. Real women have curve. Every time I tell that story, there's always a few people in the audience who I can tell feel bad for me. And I need you to know, uh, I don't need that. Um, <laughs> I need you to know I am immune to body shame. I don't know why. I think it might be a side effect of being immune to all other kinds of shame. Uh, Someone said to my face the other day, you look tired and I was not offended at all. I was just like, oh yeah, I am tired, (laughs) yeah. Oh, I've been tired every day since I was 14 years old. Yeah, I wake up tired, I go to bed tired, I get middle of the day tired. I probably get tired while I'm sleeping, I just don't know about it. Honestly, the fact that you're telling me that I look tired to you right now, all that tells me is that at some point in our relationship, I didn't look tired to you, and I don't know how I pulled that off. That's incredible. This is not an insult today. This is a compliment that took a few months to get here. But better late than never. I'm not a go-getter either, you know?
1: I am here with the comedian behind the joke you just heard, Emily Heller. Thank you so much.
0: Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: So... Let's start here. Uh, I've heard you talk about this album and special was worked on fairly deliberately because of the schedule for Barry. You guys wrote season one, but because that show shot after you wrote the whole thing and then post-production and then also HBO like sits on things for forever. You sort of knew you had time and you knew that you'd have a job because Barry was so good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That you're like, well, either I'll work on Barry or people like you worked on Barry.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) So. Why did it, did you need sort of an uninterrupted process to work on stand-up? What did it mean to have a deadline? Uh, and did you set certain intentions sort of at the very beginning of that process?
0: Um, yeah, so I had been, you know, like, doing TV writing for a few years, and I had been trying to do stand-up at the same time. And I was just finding that I was sort of creatively divided. Um, I kind of have always seen my, like my creative process as like my brain's kind of like a rock tumbler where I put something in it and then I wait a while and then something else comes out. And you, and when I'm working on stand up primarily, the thing that comes out is a joke or like a joke premise or like an idea of something to talk about on stage. And I realized that while I was working on TV, the things that were coming out of the rock tumbler were like TV ideas. And so it got to this point where i was no longer just like in the back of my mind working on stand up sort of unconsciously it became something that i had to really consciously focus on and it, i i also found ever since i moved to la like it's hard to get momentum going on on jokes whereas like in new york you can kind of like do a million shows and work on a premise and after like a couple weeks it's more of a joke than a premise and just out here, I wasn't finding that to be the case, and so yeah I, I I knew that like when I took the job on Barry, it was at a point where I was already feeling like i wanted to take a break and do stand-up but i didn't feel like i could because i wasn't sure when the next job would come and that was such a good opportunity i didn't even know how good of an opportunity it was at the time when i took it it was one of those ones where like i was considering not taking the job and my reps were like what are you doing (laughs) what are you thinking take this job everyone wants this job um and so I knew that when the first season was over, I wanted to go on the road and I had no idea that I was going to have a full year.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, But I did. I had like a full year and we have um, in the middle of like another full year of hiatus from Barry, which has been kind of nice. But um, some of the material was stuff that I had been working on and there was some stuff that like had been that I had been closing with at the time that I recorded my first album that I just decided to like wait and save for the next thing because it um, I didn't feel like I needed it on the first album, and I wanted to have something to close with when I went on the road to work Sorry. on my new material. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely need deadlines, and so to know I, w- I had decided like at the end of this tour, I'm going to record an album. That was like good motivation, and I and I really structured that year in a way that would allow me to build from the beginning because at the beginning of that year, I did tours opening for people. I opened for Dusselnick and I opened for Nick Thune and I like did the Melbourne Comedy Festival where I was only doing 15 minutes. So I set it up so that at the beginning of the tour I was only doing like 15 to 25 minute sets um, because I knew I didn't have the hour yet and I wanted a sort of lower pressure way to uh, start building out new material. And then I booked like full club weekends for later in the year and and things like that. And so by the end, I was doing like club weekend after club weekend. And by the time I got to the point where it was the album, I was like, okay, yeah, I knew that it had to be, I was super ready by the time I recorded it, which was nice.
1: You mentioned opening for Anthony and Nick. I I always want, when you open for someone, is it, do you learn things from them? Like, you don't necessarily ape their style and you don't sound like either of them, but, like, is, it something <laughs> about being, is being from their audience shape your comedy in any way?
0: I mean, other comedians' audiences are super informative. I think Anthony Jeselnik's audience teaches me a lot because that's so not the audience that I've been going for. Like, I don't have, like, a necessary idea of who my perfect audience is, but I do think that his audiences... They go to shows for different reasons than I think the people who come. Well, I assumed that they went to shows for different reasons than people who would come to see me, which is like, I approach my audience like they came here to feel good. (laughs) And I feel like there are definitely people in Anthony's audience where they're like, I came here to feel bad. (laughs) Like, I came here to have someone make fun of me because he gets heckled a lot and like he goes after them hard when he does and like they clearly enjoy it. And I think what was surprising to me about opening for Anthony, and I've opened for him for years, is that, like, I knew it was going to be a challenge because I knew there were going to be people in the, like, he has a lot of really smart fans and he has a lot of fans who just really love a well-constructed joke. And it turns out I do well in front of those people because I construct my jokes very well. Sure. Um, but then he does have people in the audience who are like, I want to hear you talk about beating a woman. <laughs> and I knew that those are the people for whom I was going to have to work. Yeah. You know, and I was like like and doing my jokes in front of them it's interesting cuz you know they laugh at different parts of your set they laugh at different parts of the interior of a joke and yeah. that sort of tells you something about what they're thinking when they hear it and when whenever you're in front of an audience that thinks really differently than you do they teach you something about how you're being heard and what and what they're hearing you say, and so that was really really informative. I think.
1: So the sense I get with this joke that it, it started with the story in the middle of the trainer.
0: You know what? It's actually the opposite. Oh, is it? Yeah. So what's so, the trainer story just kind of happened. That was like I think when I recorded the album, that was the newest bit.
1: That's I would never. I, as you <laughs> said, I felt I was like, oh, of course, the trainer had to be first. <laughs>
0: yeah it just sort of like worked out that way where like the the beginning and the end of this of this chunk um both came out of writing exercises that I did on these writing retreats that I do where and again it's part of my like intentional sort of approach to writing new material in LA which is that like I realized things aren't just going to happen to me I need to sort of like Think I wanted to think really consciously about what I want to say on stage and who I want to be and how I want to approach things and also, like, give myself a sort of structure to develop that new material. So I started doing these writing retreats. I think I've done three so far um, where, like, me and, like, four or five other comedians go off and, like, Airbnb a house for a weekend. And I built this schedule kind of loosely based on this performing arts summer camp schedule that I used to go to and work at where we would do like warm ups, and then creative exercises and then workshopping. And it was all really structured and all really like the day was totally full. And one of the writing exercises that I do, which I think I invented, I'm not sure, is to write a joke based on Like the way I started doing it at first, I, I, I would do it by writing down, like writing down something that I hate and then trying to write a joke about why I like that thing. And then it turned into we would all write down things we hated on cards and then we would shuffle them and hand them out to each other. And so I ended up with other people's cards, and I would have to write a joke about why I like the thing that they had written down that they hated. And so the joke about like kids on leashes came out of that, where someone wrote down, I like, kids on leashes. And I was like, okay, now I have to write a joke about why I like kids on leashes. Raising kids seems really hard, which is why I am all in favor of putting your kid on a leash if you want to. (laughs) It gets a bad rap, but put your kid on a leash. I don't care, I've never seen a kid on a leash who didn't need that leash. (laughs) You know what I mean? The leash is always pulled taut, always reaching for a stranger's mouth. (laughs) Put your kid on a leash, I don't care. I don't understand a single argument against it. People are like, I don't wanna put my kid on a leash because I want him to explore. I want him to be an explorer. You guys know explorers, history's worst monsters. <laughs> Why would we encourage that behavior? Maybe maybe if Columbus's mom had put him on a leash as a kid, he wouldn't have spent his adulthood genociding everyone. <laughs> Teach boundaries young. For me, I noticed that when I watch stand-up, a lot of times the jokes that I like are when people sort of surprise me with their perspective on something. Either it's something that's surprisingly joyful about something about life that's kind of hard to deal with. um, Or it's just them thinking about something in a new way. And I feel like what's good about a joke like that is it sort of justifies why you're listening to that person talk for an hour is you're like, Oh, yeah, you have something interesting to say about something that's like a very common thing that we all don't like. And even if it is sort of an underhanded, like, eventually you sort of get around to that, you know, that it's a bad thing. Like, I understand why you're talking about it and why I'm listening to you talk about it. And so the two things that I got, one of them was like exercise classes. And then I ended up just writing a joke about workout clothes and why I don't like them. Yeah. Because, hey, there's no rules in a writing exercise. You don't have to stick to the assignment.
1: Rule Um, number one, no rules. Yeah,
0: no rules. So and that just sort of like turned into the, the joke that sort of opened that section. And then... The other joke was people saying, you look tired. And that one, I I think I kind of stuck to the assignment of trying to make it a positive thing or at least take sort of the venom out of it. And so both of those were jokes where I felt like they were kind of in my act. They didn't mean that much until that central story happened. Um, And then I sort of plugged them in around that and it became part of this larger story. But I knew that, I mean, so the effect that like that, writing exercise is useful for writing jokes. I think one thing that I had been thinking super consciously about when constructing this set and that's something that I had to keep like working on and honing. It's something that Nicole Bayer talked about on your podcast too is the idea that like whenever a woman gets on stage and talks about her weight, it's just assumed that it's self-deprecating. Yeah. When One of the – I'm always trying to get closer to the truth on stage and to the thing about me that I think is interesting or that other people think is interesting about me. One of the other things we do at the writing retreat is we have the other comedians write down what they like about you on stage, which is, like, super helpful in ways you don't expect because no one knows how they sound. Do you remember what they said? Um, I think the one that – the one that really sticks with me the most is Jamie Lee wrote down that I seemed like a little sister which I am and that is like an energy that I think I bring on stage in a way that I hadn't put my finger on but one of the things that I know about myself and also about the world is that like the my feelings about my body are unusual and my feelings about how I look and about weight and stuff like I hate that it's true, but, like, there have been so many times when I've been in a room and been the only woman there who had never had an eating disorder. And I don't know why it happened. I kind of get at that at the end of the joke with yeah. the sort of, like, I don't experience shame and I don't know why. Like, maybe I just was, like, too self-absorbed to really take in the messages of the world around me. But it's not an something I work toward. It's not an act. I genuinely... <laughs> Do really like myself and the way I look and I've never really hated myself for those reasons. And I wanted it to be clear that that's where I was coming from when I talk about this stuff, because I think it's interesting. Yeah. And even though I'm talking about something in these jokes that I think is like pretty well-worn territory, especially for women to talk about on stage. Like if I'm bringing anything to this conversation, it's that. Yeah, It's that like just being on stage and modeling a way to think about this stuff that doesn't make you feel like shit. <laughs> I remember like years ago and this was on my mind a lot when I was writing these jokes. I had submitted a set for a late night and it literally all I in the in the set I mentioned gaining weight. I didn't say anything bad about it in the joke. And the note I got back was like they don't want self-deprecating humor from women right now. Yeah. Which I was like I didn't self-deprecate yeah. in that joke. And you know, I had the experience that I know like Nicole has had uh where like when I first started telling the story about the trainer at the gym, people would come up to me and be like, "Stop calling yourself fat." And I'd be like, "I didn't call myself fat yeah. in the joke." And so it became this thing where I had to really consciously tinker with it and make it as absolutely crystal clear as possible in the joke that like i think i am beautiful it's like the type of thing i would never say if you were just talking to me yeah.
1: you have to like really under <laughs> like there's three times of this joke where you're like it's i am hot and this yeah. person is hot <laughs> i mean I, th- I yeah you do that thing where you set up like oh i don't look like a person a fit person in workout clothes makes sense to people mm-hmm. but so i think the assumption there is like oh well because their body is "Quote unquote," good. But you're like, no, they just look correct.
0: Yeah. They just look like they're doing the thing they want to do with their life, yeah. which is the thing that I actually think we should be judged on is like, how liberated are you? How self-actualized are you? That's the metric I'm going I on know. here. Like, is this,
1: are you enjoying your life? <laughs> because people are assuming the type of joke it's going to be. When you're like, oh, no, you like literally like, oh, this is going to be a joke about how she's like, oh, no, no, this is a joke about people doing the thing they want to do and how we look at people doing the things they do.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I think because I do feel like I'm a little bit immune to the messaging around what women are supposed to look like when that incident happened at the gym with that guy. I was like, oh shit, I'm in it right now. It's <laughs> happening to me. And this is so weird. And I had been working on this material already about, yeah. like, about how to approach this thing that I was really trying to do for my mental health, because this was also just a way of talking about my ADHD diagnosis in a way that sort of related it to what it means for my life. So when I went in there, I was like, oh, like, if I hadn't been actively thinking about this, I don't know how I would have handled this guy's attention. Yeah. I don't know if I would have been, like, fine, I want to lose weight, like, right away, or if I would have been, like... But it was not one of those situations where I was, like, I don't know if this guy's ever met anyone who didn't want to change their body just for the sake of changing their body, because, that you know, where I was, like, I have, like, all of the... Reasons why like concern trolls who are like mad about brands glorifying obesity all of them being like well No, it's just not healthy to have a body like that and you should be worried about your health It's like so if I come in here saying I just want to be healthy and it's not about
1: yeah My look
0: my yeah losing weight or this like aesthetic thing. Are you gonna be cool with that? Oh, no, you're not you're full of shit all of that stuff is just like you are totally full of shit Yeah, like let's be honest about what's happening here. You are body shaming me in person i have never actually dealt with this before and it's very bizarre to me it's also
1: i mean as i said i assumed just like oh a real life experience happened but like ultimately you are already it you're living a life where you had material that you're like this guy is like in the moment <laughs> writing a scene with me i
0: mean it, this doesn't come across in the joke but i came home and i was very upset and like i don't usually write jokes about things that really upset me. It was one of those things where like, like I talked about it on my podcast right after it happened. And I realized pretty soon afterward that it was like a perfect demonstration of this thing that I have been trying to articulate to people, which was like very useful. But it came at a time when I was really struggling with how to be well. Um, Because I, the thing that drove me to get, My ADHD diagnosis was like being in a really low place and realizing that there was something kind of wrong with me and that I wasn't functioning in the way that I wanted to. And so when I made this very genuine attempt to, like, improve my life and to improve the way that I move through the world not in a like New Year's resolution time to get that beach body in shape kind of way, but to be like, my fucking brain doesn't work right. And I want my brain to work because it's the most important thing to me. Everything good in my life comes from my (laughs) brain. And to be met with this sort of like very weird obstacle, it was like, I was already at a point where I was like, everything is frustrating to me. Everything is overwhelming to me. I just want one of the people who I'm reaching out to for help to not be a fucking asshole. (laughs) I'm not like necessarily grateful that that story happened, but I do think that like it made the jokes that are around it. It gave them more of a purpose in my act than they had before. They were kind of, they kind of felt like filler before and then, when the story happened, I was sort of like, oh, no, this is part of a larger story that I'm trying to tell on stage about, like, what it means to try and be better yeah. in the world. Because that was the thing where I was, like, approaching this hour of comedy and trying to think about, like, what I'm trying to say. I'm always trying to talk about, like, where I am in my life. And I think my my first album was more about, like, that period of my life where I, like, really didn't have my shit together and was sort of talking about that. And now... I, you know, I was writing this album while I was like, well, no, I'm employed on like an Emmy nominated TV show. I'm not going to pretend like I don't have my shit together in any way. But the thing that I am working on in my life is always trying to be better and trying to figure out how I'm supposed to be in this world. And that's what the entire album is about in a way. And so... I, ho- I hope that it tells the story in a way that's compelling to people. And I hope that the things about these jokes, which I do think on their surface are somewhat cliche topics, I hope the thing about them that is subversive is coming across to people.
1: Yeah. Well, I, th- I, I, I want to talk about, well, self-deprecation a little bit more and partly the sort of the assumed self-deprecation and that ultimately you are subverting that. And I wanted to bring up, I believe when you started working on this tour, you were in Australia- doing a show in the same venue that Nanette yes. Hannah Gatsby was doing Nanette
0: totally yeah and what, uh,
1: which is like about this which a... is
0: about this too <laughs> yeah. yeah totally and that I'm I, I so I got to see Nanette like a year before everyone else did um, which I'll brag about till the day I die sure. <laughs> um, and I was like a fan of hers from that show Please Like Me um which i was like obsessed with so when i went to australia i was like i'm so i was so she was op- running that show right before ours and so i watched it i think a couple times and it did have like it, it, to the se- to the extent that like i that was the very beginning of my tour and i was like i am ready to think super critically about what i'm saying on stage and how i'm saying it and why i'm saying it and then she had this show that was all about that It was impossible not to be like super influenced by like, oh, yeah, like, let me think about what it means to shit on myself on stage. And I think in general, like when I did the Melbourne Festival, I was like, I made a point to see a different show every night um, that I was there. So I saw like 10 different shows and um, the way they do comedy over there. That was the thing that was interesting with all of the Nanette backlash. I was like people being like, this isn't stand up. And this is like so different than and I was like, if you if any of those people saying that had been to that festival, they would know that that's totally normal there. Like every single show I saw there was like that in some way where it was like, it wasn't punch, punch, punch. It was like, here's a cohesive idea that I'm going to explore in this hour. And That's just how they do it there. It was one of those things where I was like, this is a cultural difference. This is like a literal cultural difference of what we attempt in America versus what they attempt over there. They're not trying to do what we're doing and failing. They're doing their own fucking thing and they don't care about what we're doing and why. And it was really helpful to go see a bunch of shows like that and to just remind myself like, oh yeah, this format that I've been really sort of strict with myself about and really, you know, I, I don't think I'm as dogmatic as other comedians are about it. But like, just to to remember, like, oh, yeah, I get to decide who I am on stage and what I do on stage. And that this sort of I'm not married to any sort of format.
1: There's there this sort of like purist or these idea the people who think they are purist. I always say, like, all the rules of comedy were invented by like terrible comedian, terrible road comedians in the 80s who were so bitter that they met demanded young comedians obey their rules of what yeah. comedy was.
0: They also don't want student debt forgiven. Yeah. Like <laughs> It's yeah. And I think that like a lot of the a lot of the times I've talked to other comedians about like these voices in the backs of our heads telling us how to do comedy and that we don't really question. But when we do when we're like, wait, what is that voice? Whose voice is that? Who is that person telling me that if I don't get up on stage every day, I'm not a c- real comedian. When you look into it, you're like, oh, it's an open micer I met in 2011. <laughs> Why am I listening to that guy? Yeah. Wh- what the fuck? Why? Yeah. Like, that doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. at all. Uh, so yeah, I I, I am a super anti comedy purity.
1: I I did want to ask you. You said writing in this retreat. You you say the word writing, and then this is part of the interview where I go, "What does writing mean? Are you writing words down? And you're like, I'm going to memorize these words."
0: Um. So I mean, the thing uh, for me about stand up is like when I just write things down for myself that I think are going to be funny, they're not funny. Sure. <laughs> they're not funny to other people other than me. I think. A lot of people become comedians because they realize, like, in the way they talk to other people, they make them laugh. And that's that is an exercise that lends itself to stand up that. So the way I use these writing retreats to turn ideas into material is you are workshopping it the day that you write it down. So. I write it out as much like a joke as I can, and sometimes it is bullet points that you are sort of like talking out to see where the laughs are. Sometimes it is word for word, depending on what it is you're writing about. Um, For me, for that, it was like, I would write it out as close to a joke as I could, talk it through with the group, get ideas from other people. I think that's the other thing that, uh, (laughs) this is one of those things where like, When I talk about doing this, I know there are people who think that it's like cheating or something, but it's absolutely not, which is like I very often work on jokes with other people where like they will pitch me lines Mm -hmm. and I'll incorporate them and I'll do that for their jokes. We trade. I try and do it only with people where I know that like I can help them as much as they can help me. And I think like pitching people lines or giving people tags for a joke is not cheating because they're like, hey, I hear your voice. Yeah. Here's the thing I think you might say. Um, a lot of really good comedians do this. And I'm totally like open about there are certain lines in my act where I'm like, the funniest line in that joke was written by another person. Like Dave Thomason wrote what I think is the best line in the Leashes joke. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband wrote what I think <laughs> is the best line in the uh Frasier friends mashup
1: which is which part
0: uh it's like you're always stuck in second cheers because I had already sung the first part of the song to him it was one of those things where like I went to the bathroom and I came out and I started singing the song and I got all the way up to uh talking on the phone to the insane and then, like, a few seconds later, he just said that to me, and I was like, well, fuck. And there's more lines to that song, but when I started doing it on stage, I had to just stop at that line, because it was clearly the biggest laugh. Yeah. Um, it's,
1: I've been singing it all <laughs> week.
0: Thank you very much. Um, I was really excited when I figured out a way to put that in, in my ass. That. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, so for me, it's like a lot of times it'll be, I'll write down the basic idea for the joke, I'll work on it with other people, and then I'll start putting it on stage. And then ideally you do it on stage in a, in a way where you can play around. Like if the audience is good enough, you can add stuff, you can mess around. I'll record it as much as I can when I'm working on it actively so that I can like remember things that I added that worked. And a lot of times I will end up like trimming stuff that doesn't work. I'll try it a few different ways to try and make the things that I like work, even if they aren't working. (laughs) Um, And then I don't always try and like write down verbatim the final version of it, but there will be beats that I know I need to hit. And if it is something that needs to be worded in a super specific way, I will write down the way of wording it that works the best because it really does affect whether a punchline works or not, <laughs> yeah. if you are missing a few words here and there. I
1: watched the special on the album. I listened to them close, and they're pretty... They're it's pretty
0: much the same material. Yeah, yeah,
1: and it's like much... The words are very close.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but it's, and I recorded them maybe six months apart.
1: That's... Um, do you... Is it ultimately that... I think about how if you ask a person to tell a story that they've told a million times, they will tell it the way they did already. Yeah. It's ultimately like you don't know that you're saying the exact same way. It's just sort of like, this is how you, you know, like a verbal change sort of tenses and, but like ultimately it's,
0: I think my downfall as a writer is that I am way too precious about my wording. Sometimes it's one of those things where like, I will be like, especially when I'm like working on other people's TV shows and I've worded something very specifically in a script and it gets changed. I'm like, Oh no, no, no. You needed, you needed that preposition so badly. What are you doing? This changes the meaning of everything. Like I totally am like a, I'm a word geek about that stuff. And I'm not one of those comedians kind of like, I, I kind of feel like Ron Funches is my opposite in terms of like, what makes his jokes work on stage. I don't trust my persona enough to not have the meaning nailed down in every single word and in the order that it's in. I'm very particular about that and when I find something that works, especially if it's something where it's like, I know that if I don't say it in this particular way, I'm going to lose track of the thought, I'll stick to it. Um, But I do find sometimes that when I've been doing it the same way over and over again, you start to get into this place of like being rote and not being connected to how the audience is experiencing what you're saying. So sometimes I do like to, at toward the end of a run like that, where I'm like doing a million shows and I'm like getting close to the album recording, like I, th- I think usually like the couple shows right before I would record like my album or my special, I would make a conscious effort to, even if I'm saying the exact same words, Try and say them in a different way because it forces you to think about what the words that you're saying mean, which is something you don't have to do as a stand-up, but is really helpful to do as a stand-up because I think any opportunity you have to put yourself in the audience's shoes and to be like, why are they laughing at this part? Oh, right, because this is what this means.
1: Yeah.
0: It's a thing that you kind of kind of get um you kind of get separated from the more you do it.
1: Yeah. Where you're like you want to be honest on stage, but ultimately, like, actors professionally pretend to be honest all the time. Yeah. And, and they're good at it. We believe that more than we believe a regular person.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I think that, like, stand-up is you just doing your half of a conversation in a way that convinces people that they've had a conversation with you. And I think in order to do that well, you have to remember what It feels like to be on the other side of that conversation, even if it means just like as you're talking, try and imagine you're saying it for the first time. And what words would you inflect to get across what it is you're trying to say?
1: I want to ask you about a couple specific parts that we haven't already touched on, which is um, you had that part where you said after I gained 40 pounds, I had made tons of money, had more sex. I don't want to jinx it either. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, and what do I stand to gain from losing weight, being too hungry to enjoy the money or sex? Mm-hmm. No, thank you. I was thinking about sort of that whole section, and there's, like, a way to tell that joke where you're, like, trying to be, like, more empowering or like uh, versus being more, like, honest. Like, literally, this is how I th- think about it. You know what yeah. I'm saying? It, it seems like you're trying to avoid what ends up—there are certain tropes that I feel like— sp- You see a lot in like commercials that are like being big is beautiful.
0: Yeah. Like sort of girl power feminism. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky because it is like sometimes the honest version of what I want to say sounds like that. Mm -hmm. And I it bums me out because it's those But our association with those sorts of ideas are that they're sort of inherently calculating and hollow because it is like it's so hard to remind people or to like get it, a- have people believe me that it's like, oh no, I'm not evaluating myself based on my beauty. And I do think a lot of those like, fat is beautiful campaigns, it's like, well, the point is still to be beautiful at the end of that. And that's not something that I actually care about. And I do truly feel liberated from those obligations in a way where it's like liberation is the only word that I can use to describe it. And that is a word that has all of these connotations that I'm not trying to bring to it. So I'm just sort of thinking about it in terms of like, okay, the things that I value in life That's what I want to come across in this, which is like, am I enjoying myself? I have these things that I want. That's kind of amazing. I didn't used to have these things. Like, I'm not trying to inspire anyone by saying, like, I'm rich, you know, and like, that's cool. (laughs) Uh, It's just more it's just sort of like, let's just think about this sort of like from a basic logical standpoint, I don't stand to gain anything from yeah. getting skinny at this point in my life. And
1: you're, you're sort of – it's a – you're modeling – it, it's like a thought experiment where you're using yourself as an example of, like, to – you walk through the subversion by being like, look, I am this example. I'm not saying, like, yes, I'm the best. You're just sort of like, this yeah. is proving the point that I'm trying to make.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think it's, it's one of those things where I realized at a certain point in my life that, like, my happiness with my life makes me an outlier in some ways. And like, I've been happy with my life before I had those things too. But like, I I do think, I mean, it, maybe it's even too in just like in comedy and stuff, but I, I think I realize that like a lot of times when it feels like my values or my life or my advice is not being sort of like respected by other people, I'm like, but I'm happier than you.
2: Mm-hmm. Doesn't
0: that mean anything? Like, doesn't it mean anything that I'm happier than you? And it it is, I think it's like, I don't mean it as empowering. I think I mean it to be mean. Yeah. In that joke, in a way, I kind of mean it to be mean to anyone who is trying to tell me to value something else. Yeah. It is a fuck you. And maybe it's empowering to other people to hear that, but I don't care.
1: <laughs> we talked a little bit about how you had certain goals of how you wanted the audience to receive it. And I was thinking about, you know, we were like around the same age and we came up through comedy in our ways around the same time. And I was thinking about this comedian, Louis C.K. And I, how,
0: have, I have never heard of him. So he was this guy
1: and he was so famous. <laughs> and But he was like, we, we were the exact time where he was like this paragon of what it meant to be a comedian. And like, yes. you have to be truthful in this way. And I wrote this piece when this stuff came out about, what does it mean, regardless of his career, like the influence of all the comedians he influenced and like yeah. the sort of definition of truth and sort of um, essentially confessing is a thing where you're like, I'm saying this, this means you forgive me and then I'm being a good boy. Like there's all that stuff.
0: Yeah, So, all but, that, but.
1: But I was thinking in the, this set was in released in the wake of the release. I mean, you sort of worked on it in the wake of all this stuff. Yeah. How do you think about, your relationship to truth as it relates to what you want the audience to get out of it.
0: What's weird is I feel like I don't think this idea of being truthful on stage, I don't think his failure to live up to that standard makes it a bad standard. Yeah. I think it means he's a massive fuck up. He is a massive massive fuck up not just at being like a decent person but also at being the type of artist that he proselytized about being like he was so fucking dishonest on stage under the guise of being honest he used honesty for its absolute most evil fucking purposes which is to hide in plain sight that he was not actually doing the work he needed to do to be an honest person. And I don't think honesty on stage is necessarily like a value in and of itself, but I just feel like for me, my comedy is better when I'm honest on stage. And what I'm offering is more interesting when I'm honest on stage. And that like honesty on stage is the thing that allows me to, offer anything valuable to the extent that I feel like I am someone whose like perspective on the world might be different than other people's. The only way to add something to a conversation that hasn't already been said is to be honest about who I am and to say something new and something interesting. It's like, well, the only way to guarantee that you're talking about something in a way that no one else is, is to talk about the things that only you can talk about. And you need honesty for that, I I think.
1: I want to talk now about my favorite part of the joke, which is the curve's curve part. Oh,
2: yeah.
1: (laughs) Just all of that. (laughs) And I was thinking about... I love love it so much. And I was thinking about a thing we have in common is, like, I feel like we are grand appreciators of Tim Robinson's canon. Oh, yes. I'm a huge, huge fan of Tim Robinson. And I was thinking, like... I feel like, do you feel like your comedy is sillier than it gets credit for being? Like, I feel like yes. you're not described as silly. And I feel like.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like if I didn't have glasses, I wonder how people would describe my comedy differently. Because I truly am not trying to be like some fucking smart ass on stage. <laughs> I'm trying to say the dumbest thing. Yeah. And if you like heard the way that I joke around with my friends or with my husband, it's like. We're never going for clever. We're going for the stupidest thing that's gonna make someone be mad at you for making a joke that makes them laugh. I mean, this is maybe not a perfect example of this, but I was just uh, I was just at uh, talking to some friends about how my favorite toast to do is like, if people are toasting and they can't think of a toast, is I always say, to show business. <laughs> because every single time I do it, someone goes, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and it never fails to yeah. get that reaction. And that's, in some ways, it's like that's never the type of joke I'm making on stage with an audience because that's not the kind of comedian I am on stage, but it's like offstage. I, I like the silliness, and I think that there's this— I think probably one of the most annoying ideas to me in sort of comedy criticism or just sort of our idea of what comedy is is that, like— In order for your work to be political, it has to be smart Mm -hmm. or it has to be not silly or it has to be like really self-conscious and self-congratulatory about the thing it's saying politically. Because the thing that I believe is that like everything everyone says is political in some way or another. And I think Tim Robinson, his comedy is so fucking silly and stupid and also wildly political in a way that's not off-putting to anyone. And that's like kind of the gold standard to me is like every single thing he's ever put out has been a total deconstruction of toxic masculinity disguised as like just like about jerking off, you know? And like, I, I love it so much for that reason because it's like, I feel like it disproves a lot of these really stupid ideas that people have that, like, if you acknowledge power systems in any way, you aren't funny. Yeah, yeah. You know?
1: So, ultimately, as you're honed it, how did the sort of response to the joke change and what do you sort of learn from the response to the joke?
0: I do think, like, there's been... You know, a few different types of like there's the responses you get from the audience while you're telling it on stage. And then like the people coming up to you afterwards saying like, you know, like, stop calling yourself fat, girl. Like you are beautiful and you are skinny and like that kind of stuff that was sort of at the beginning of the joke that that did inform the way that I honed it. And then by the end, when I was just getting on stage and doing it, I feel lucky that I got enough like messages from people afterward telling me that the exact right thing came across that I feel like I did my job at least a little bit that like I think I got a message after maybe the special came out where someone said like I was just watching your special and for the first time in my life I considered the idea that I don't need to want to be skinny and I was like that's exactly what i wanted to happen that is the exact thing that i hoped would come across yeah. from telling this joke and so i feel really happy about that that it's like even if one person oh god this sounds so fucking corny <laughs> even okay. if one person is like yeah you maybe uh opened a door to me to a way to not hate myself <laughs> like that's not, that's great yeah that's fucking great because i also think i'm like We only have so much fucking time on this planet. We only have so much energy. Like, worrying about being skinnier, it's like we need you to do other shit. You know what I mean? Like, the world cannot afford us, this to be the only project women are working on. And of course I know plenty of women who are working on being skinny and curing diseases at the same time. But I still feel like it's a fucking monumental waste of time.
1: We'll be right back with more Emily, Heller after (laughs) this word from our sponsor. We are back with Emily Heller. Hello. On the special, you start with a sketch about how you wanted no men to be allowed at the taping. Uh, yes. <laughs> but then you sort of, because of ticket sales, invited the menu, which is somewhat based on <laughs> true stories.
0: A little bit, yeah. Like, a little
1: bit. Um, but I, I want to think. I wanted to ask you about this, especially how it relates to sort of an audience. And the general of the audience, and sort of a conversation you, ha- you see some stand ups having, like, oh, a comedian must be able to play in front of everyone, which is there's no comedian that's ever actually been true for. But uh-huh. um, how do you think about how your jokes play differently for women and men? And and how do you process that or care about that? Like, why why are you thinking maybe this is the thing you'd want to do? And, and, I'm not truly I'm not saying it's like why can't I be there as a person who was at the taping of your first album yeah I feel like but like how do you sort of think about it
0: first of all I I do think that like I hope people got the joke uh, <laughs> which I think they did um I do like having men in my shows I I don't I, I I wasn't sincerely saying like I don't want you to listen it was more of just like what's a funny way to sort of in some ways, market this special and let people know, like, what it's about. But I was also thinking about, like, anyone who's recording an album or a special tries to pack the audience with people who are going to enjoy it. That's why so many comics, like, record their albums in their hometown, where they know they can get, like, a ton of people there. And um, I was also thinking about it because when I filmed The Half Hour, um, Samantha Black, who does audience coordination for a bunch of things. She was also the audience coordinator at Totally Biased when I was the warm up comic for that show. So she and I knew each other really well. And um, after I recorded my my half hour, she told me that she was like, as I was loading people in, I asked every person that walked in if they were a feminist and if they said no, I sent them <gasps> to the balcony. <laughs> Uh, so the idea really didn't come, yeah, and then she, like, sent a bunch of people who said yes, like, to the front, because she wanted me to do well, because she knew, you know, the thing, like, I don't love preaching to the choir necessarily, but when you have to do that little extra work of getting people on your side, it slows down getting to people on board with this weird train of thought you want to go on like when people are on board from the get-go like I'm still gonna work to make them laugh I'm still gonna earn that laugh but I want them to laugh at the part of the joke that I think is funny you know that's what I want like ideally someone totally gets what I'm saying and that's the kind of audience that I wanted and I I knew and like there's only a few jokes in my act where I feel like this is gonna be funny to women in a way that it's not funny to men. And one of them that I, I talked about in the past is like, I had I have a joke in my act about how good it feels to take your bra off. And I'm sorry, like men are not gonna understand that feeling. Yeah. Like I could try and come up with an analog, but I wouldn't know how accurate of a comparison it is. And there's just a thing about that joke where I'm like I am going to live with the fact that not everyone in the room is going to laugh at this in the same way. And I think as, as it was getting closer to my um, album recording, which I didn't do women only, um, but for my my special I did, um, but as I was getting closer to my album recording, I think I did one weekend at a club where I had never performed in that city before. I didn't sell out. And they papered the club a little bit for at least one of the shows. There was one show in particular where I knew that there were a bunch of people there who didn't know who I was and a bunch of them were these like really macho dudes. And watching those guys watch the show, (laughs) I was like, I am gonna fucking crack these guys. And I did, but the parts of the jokes that they laughed at were different. Yeah than the things that I think are funny. And I try and build my jokes out so that there's little punchlines for different groups of people and that there's a part you're gonna, I'm gonna make you laugh at at least one part of this joke. Uh, That's my goal with every chunk of material is I'm like, there is something that is gonna get you. Like it might not be the main punchline that I think is funny or that most people think is funny, but there's one part of the joke that you are going to enjoy. And that also tells me what kind of people I'm dealing with. And that was one of those shows where I was just like, I love watching men not enjoying themselves with women who are enjoying themselves like on a date Mm -hmm. where it's like, I wonder how often you two go out because the type of men who don't enjoy my show are fucking assholes. Uh, (laughs) I'm just assuming. I'm making a big leap here. But, like, when a couple comes to my show and the woman's having a great time and the man is not having a great time, I'm like, I bet almost every other time you go out it's for your benefit. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Like, if the things that I am saying about my life make you this mad, like you're a shitty boyfriend, probably. Uh, And so that kind of informed why I decided to be like, you know what, I'm gonna go out of my way to try and, cause it was, part of it was like, I do wanna have the best audience possible when I record this. I want every joke to kill like crazy. uh, Because when you're watching it at home, if that's not happening, it seems like the person's bombing even if they're doing really well. Um, And then part of it was just to be like, I know that my jokes do better in front of women and I also want, for the men who come to this space to know that this is maybe not designed with their pleasure in mind. You know, (laughs) it's it's like
1: it's it's so interesting because there's this idea that funny like funny is funny is a thing that the generation above us always would say, as a, you know, and it's if you put people in the audience that's like, well, you're not funny. It's like, well, that person next to you was laughing. So it's so clear yes. you're wrong.
0: It's so clear that also I do think that we try and treat comedy like it's this sort of culturally simple thing. And that it's not as different as music where Mm -hmm. it's like, I'm going to go to a comedy show and hope I have a good time. It's like you would never go to just be like, I'm going to go see some music. I have no idea what genre it is. I have no idea who it's for. It's like, no, you're allowed to have specific tastes and you're allowed to be talking to a specific audience. And I think that I'm okay at this point. I think for, you know, if it was my first ever special of some kind, I wouldn't feel as confident saying like, no, I know who I'm for. Like every comedian that I've talked to says that like maybe not everyone, but like a lot of the people I've talked to and I know I feel this way is like the goal is to get to a point where everyone who comes to your show knows who you are yeah. <laughs> knows what they're in for is in the proper context like that's all we want is to be performing for people who want to see us perform yeah you know
1: what a crazy standard
0: <laughs> it's a crazy idea i know <laughs> I, w-
1: I was thinking about maybe it was the first time we met in person or at least one of them which was um i moderated a panel for y'all cohen's oral history for women in comedy oh
2: yeah uh
1: and this this was the it was a women in comedy panel is the first and only of these panels that i had moderated it was not the first one i oh, ever yeah. been asked <laughs> I to was mod- like
0: i'm pretty sure there have been more panels about women in no, comedy no, it's since the first one. i moderated <laughs> oh, yeah. and it was not the
1: first i was asked but it is uh in the t- in the interim since i was asked to do it i wasn't gonna say no but from hearing from women in comedy they find these panels like annoying or ghettoizing or pa- patronizing but I don't know. I have not talked to a person in a while about them. Yeah. <laughs> um. What do you think? Has your thinking about them involved?
0: It's so interesting because I think I'm of both opinions. Like, I, and sometimes, I sometimes find them ghettoizing. I sometimes find them to be, like, frustrating. I'm really tired of having to talk about what it's like to be a woman in comedy. If only because I think that my my creative process is just as complicated as any male comedian. I'm just as silly as any male comedian. I'm just as stupid as any male comedian. I love comedy as much as any male comedian does. I like care about comedy as much as any male comedian does. The entirety of comedy is the stuff that male comics get to talk about. And very often I'm reached out to by newspapers to answer only this one yeah. question. And that's also part of why I decided to do my special this way was because I was like, if you're only ever gonna ask me about what it's like to be a woman in comedy, I'm at least gonna be able to promote my fucking work while yeah. I do it. Cause very, very often it's like, you only want to talk to me about this and you don't want to talk to me about the work that I am making and the thing that I'm out here doing that makes me an expert on this. Yeah. Um, and so I, when I, do, like, decide whether or not I'm going to answer these questions or do these panels or or things like that, I I do have to sort of, like, parse, like, does this, is this person smart about this? Have they looked into this to know whether or not they're asking me a question that you can easily Google the answer to?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, or, like, is this going to be adding to the conversation? Is this going to make me seem like I am this, like, single issue shrew who doesn't actually know what's funny and is just mad about where i am in comedy but i do think while at the beginning of my career i was like maybe a little bit more careful about it i i think in part because people a lot of reactions that people have are like oh well you're just mad that you're not funny enough to get what these men have and that's why you're complaining about it and so i've been slightly less hesitant to talk about it recently because I'm like, oh no, I'm successful. I'm doing well. And I've actually been on almost every side of this industry. I've written for TV, I've acted on TV, I've done stand-up. I've like, I have watched casting videos. I have cast people in TV shows. I'm like, I know that we're up against it. I know what's going on. I'm actually an authority and I have nothing to really lose by talking about this, honestly, because I'm already in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'm I'm in, I have a little bit of power. I'm not going to lose that power by talking about this now. So you can't say I'm just bitter. Yeah. I'm not bitter. I'm extremely happy with where I am <laughs> in my career. Um, and there's still giant issues that we need to work on.
1: You've talked about the sort of difficulty around selling this special before it landed on Comedy Central Digital, yeah. And I feel like I'm hearing that more and more from a certain tier of comedian who isn't like getting zillions of dollars from Netflix to essentially come out of retirement or to like poop out a special in mm-hmm. like a couple months. Or there's like, or the seemingly one Else are people with the the special as an extension of some sort of other development deal, yeah. And over the over the course of my career writing about comedy. Where in, like, eight years, it went from, like, rare for anyone to do any special to everyone self-releasing to then Netflix is giving everyone a special. It's like, oh, no, now now Netflix is only giving certain people 15 minutes. Yeah. And now, now people are kind of self-releasing again. But what I haven't done as much what is what's it like for as a comedian to be like, I'm trying to do this thing, which is, like, create art and put it out. And you have it's like it's a moving target all the time.
0: Yeah, it's really tricky. And I think it's it's a total mindfuck for a lot of comedians who because w- w- if you start in comedy and you say, I want to make an hour long special, it takes a really long time to get to the point where you are a good enough comedian with an- enough good material that you can do that thing. And so like a lot of us when we started, that was the goal. And now we're at a point where it's like, oh, no, I should put out a fifth minute. I've been working toward this other thing
2: yeah.
0: for for years. This has been the thing I have been working toward. And the thing that makes you a good comedian for people to see is your ability to go out and put on an hour long show because that's the that's format. The job, yeah. That's the for- job. It's the format you work in. And, like, you know, it's not a new thing to say, like, a 10 minute set, working on a 10 minute set is really different than working on an hour long special. And I mean, talk about the jokes that we're talking about now. Like, I can't do these jokes in a 10-minute set. It's the entire set if I do. Um, It's a thing that only works in an hour-long special. I do think that like, because it is such a moving target, in some ways it forces you – if you're willing to look at it this way, and if you're lucky enough to be able to look at it this way, which I was, where I'm like, I'm not a road dog. I'm not worried as much about selling tickets. I go on the road when I want to because I make most of my money writing TV. Yeah, That I get to think about stand-up in terms of like, what do I want out of this creatively? Because stand-up is now where I go to have absolute creative freedom when the rest of my career is working on other people's projects for the most part. And getting rewritten and getting notes and stuff like standups, the one place where I get to say everything exactly how I want to say it. I got to think about this special in terms of what is the art that I want to make? Not what's going to get me sold. Like what's going to be, cause every other point, like when I was trying to get the half hour on comedy central, like that didn't happen when I wanted it to like, I submitted a set, And then didn't get it the year that they had basically told me I was going to. And then the following year, I didn't submit. Yeah. And then they gave it to me based on the exact same material, which I had already recorded on my album. And for me, again, it's that thing of like, I like being honest on stage. I like talking about where I am in my life. And like, I don't like to go to backtrack into the past and talk about this version of myself that I'm not anymore. Like, I like putting the material out when I feel like it's done and when I feel like it's... make sense like that's the thing that we don't get as much control of in this you know in this world and I did have to decide I was like okay I have been working on this as an hour that was my artistic goal when I set out I was like I want to put out a special or I just want to work on an hour I want this to be a cohesive show you know not like australia cohesive but like america cohesive um and what does it mean what i had to give up other opportunities in order to put it out the way that i wanted to and
1: like a netflix half hour or whatever or like some like small yeah they were
0: they were kind of like well why don't you wait a year and do the a half hour then and i was like i'm not gonna wait a year to put out half of this material at a time when it makes way less sense yeah. because like the material that i did like about you know trump and stuff it was like i wrote that as a comedian who was on the road right after this dude got elected that was a very specific moment it was Mm -hmm. a very specific thing to go through i started that material in australia where i was doing this show where it was like americans and people were coming to the show for fucking answers yeah they weren't there for our jokes they like needed us to talk about what just happened and i was trying to figure out how to talk about it and that's where those jokes kind of came from and it was i was like i'm not going to put this material out in a year especially because A lot of different versions of that joke ended up like coming out in different like Bill Maher did like a very like shitty version of it. And like I was like, I need to put this out now. Like I thought of this a while ago and I want it out now. So, yeah, I, I do think that the way that the industry has changed has kind of fucked up the way we think about what we do on stage and that. There's this calculus that people do of like, well, what will get me attention? What will get me known? What will take me to that next level where I can tour and have people show up and know who I am? Which is still Netflix. Netflix is still like the widest audience that you can get uh, unless you have like a miraculously popular podcast. And... What am I giving up in order to like get to that audience? And so for me at this point, I was like, I'm lucky where I'm like, once I put this out, I'm not going to be on the road again for a while. So I don't have to, that's not something I'm factoring in. Um, And it was was frustrating because I like, you know, obviously I would have liked to have sold this to Netflix and had it be super accessible and not have to talk people through how to find it on the Comedy Central app and stuff. But like, I'm happy that I was able to like put it out yeah. Sort of in the way that I wanted to.
1: I will say it being on YouTube is much more accessible than so many other ways of Yeah, it. <laughs> that's true.
0: I mean there have been people who've been like, I haven't figured out how to find it. And I'm like, just look for it on YouTube. Just you can watch Google it. Google it. You can watch the whole thing on <laughs> just YouTube. Google your name yeah. and it will come up. It'll come up and you can watch the whole thing. You don't have to pay any money. It's kind of great.
1: So after now talking about stand-up for a million years, does yes. it feel weird <laughs> to talk about stand-up?
0: <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not performing right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. It does. It kind of does feel like I am going into the past because these are not questions that i'm actively thinking about right now so uh i for context i have not really performed much since i put the special out like yeah And since i put the album i think the last set i did was james corden wow which was back in november when my album came out i like did a set then to promote that and then my special came out in march and i've I've done everything but stand up to promote it um, because I have been really busy with TV work. And to be honest, like I really put my heart and soul into that special. It was a frustrating process and TV stuff is going really well, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. Like I really like my work and it's the thing that's really getting me going creatively right now. And I do – I am trying to stop thinking about stand-up the way I used to, which is this sort of very dogmatic get-up every night or you're not a real comedian. Do it all the time or you're not a real comedian. It's who you are. It's everything about you. And instead think about my life more in terms of like, okay, well, day-to-day, what do I want to be doing? Yeah and what is making me happy creatively and what's exciting me and what do I want to be working on. And I just, I've been waiting and I I don't like getting up on stage when I don't have new material to work on. I don't like getting up and doing my old material. Like it's fun. Just to do it. Just to do it, Yeah. yeah. Like it's fun but it's also like Best case scenario, I have a great set and I write a new tag and then I can't put it on the album. (laughs) You know, like I can't go back and re-record my special and add this new one. And it makes me mad. It makes me mad to improve upon something that I can't put out. Yeah, I I gave myself permission to just say, I'm taking a break from stand-up. I'll come back to it when there's something I really want to say. I really want it to be a creative decision to come back and not like a business decision or a calculated sort of like I need to feel like I'm part of the thing again I don't want it to be FOMO I want it to be like because this is the thing that's exciting me creatively right now and that I have something that I really want to say that I've worked on something that I feel like there's something I really have to offer but there's something there's a bit more freedom in television for me right now just because there are things I can talk about in my tv writing that I can't talk about Mm -hmm. on stage there are
1: like like what
0: i mean there are just things where i feel like i can't talk about there's certain things where i'm like to talk about this on stage as myself would be too revealing like i don't have problems revealing certain things revealing anything about my life but i have a lot of people around me who don't feel that way (laughs) you know like it's a way to talk about things that have happened to me in my past where I'm like well if I talked about this on stage everyone would know who I was talking about but I can talk about this in a script I can talk about this in a storyline and it's a way of me for me to like work through something that creatively I haven't been able to approach because of my commitment to honesty and stand-up
1: so the way you talk about it's like you you're motivated to create and stand-up is a medium I feel like people like to pontificate about why people become stand-ups and they're sort of all like, oh, it's this darkness and blah, 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 blah. But like ultimately, at its core, the basic difference between writing comedy and, you know, you write comedy, you write something that's funny, you're like, I enjoyed writing that. And the difference is the need to tell it directly to people.
0: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> and, and sort of like, and comedians, especially at the beginning, have to have that need because it's so hard and weird to do stand-up. Yeah. But you clearly right now for whatever reason don't have that need like so that you're just basing it on sort of your desire to is this the medium that works for what you're doing yeah so how does it feel to not have a compulsion or whatever
0: well what's interesting for me I think is I think it's connected with getting diagnosed with ADHD because I think for a while stand-up was the only medium I felt like I could work in because I didn't know that I had ADHD and I think stand up attracts people who have it because there is a ton of accountability and feedback and you don't have to work for long spurts. You can write one joke and then you can get up on stage and you can get that stimulation that you need in order to feel creative. It's like one of those things where I was like, this feels like the only type of writing I have the discipline for because of this feedback, because of this type of schedule. Like This is working for me now. And now that I have, first of all, I take medication, I'm aware of my condition and I have figured out ways to work around it. And I have successfully learned how to write longer things without feeling like a failure at every fucking step of the way. And so really what's happened is I've learned how to do other things that I wasn't able to do before. Stand up was the only thing I could do. And now it isn't. Yeah. And I feel lucky that I've had this other thing sort of open up to me, which is like, oh, I know how to write a TV script now. And I know now how to like manage my time a little bit better. And I know how to work on things on my own. And I'm starting to learn tricks for how to like do the things I wasn't able to do before. And I think that has been a bigger part of it than I realized, which is like, I just actually... Couldn't do anything yeah. else for a while. <laughs> I've always wanted to do other things. Stand up, what never felt like anything I was settling for. Like I still truly love it. I still love being on stage. I've been doing as many non stand up shows as I can. Like I do panels. I do anything where I don't have to prepare for it. Yeah. I love getting up on stage and doing it and riffing and things like that. But yeah, I I, I don't feel as like utterly dependent on it as I used to.
1: Your sister, Marielle is a director and writer, as as you know. Yes. <laughs> she is your sister. Um, and she's very good at it. For the listeners who maybe don't know, she directed The Diary of a Teenage Girl and Can You Ever Forgive Me? And she has the upcoming Mr. Rogers movie that I'm very excited yes, about. Yes,
0: it's very good.
1: And I believe she, she kind of first started like pursuing theater, being an actress a little bit more. Yeah. I've never heard you talk about what it's like and what sort of conversations you guys have and the similarities and differences, is sort of the nature of how your career evolves and how you sort of approach it, considering that you
0: we're both in the industry, but in but very like such ways. a weird,
1: different ways you kind of got there.
0: Well, I think part of that is because she and I have really different sort of styles of of working. She's a different type of creative person yeah. than I am. She's so has such clear vision, and she's so knows what she wants, and like when she first started, like, She decided she wanted to do that show as a play and she wrote the play and she starred in it. And that was her totally creating her own opportunity for herself. And then she did the Sundance Labs and she she just sort of like got this idea in her head that she wanted to be a writer and she wanted to be a director and that she knew it was something that she could do and she fucking did it. And when she did that, I'll be honest, I was like, that sounds crazy. I was like, I couldn't, I, I don't work like that. Yeah. I'm not, and I don't think I have imposter syndrome. I don't think anyone you would talk to who, sure. who has known me would say that I suffer from imposter syndrome. But my way of, I think I'm just like, I'm not super comfortable with the unknown. That's why I prefer TV to movies. I'm like, I know these people. I'm gonna spend time with these people that I already know. Uh, a movie, I'm like, why the fuck would I sign up for that? Um, <laughs> so already we di- we work in different mediums. Yeah. She's a movie person, I'm a TV person. But um, for me, like when I took my first TV writing job, I went into it feeling like I don't know if I'm gonna be good at this. I don't know if I'm gonna like this. I am gonna try it. I don't know how it's gonna go, but I want to come in. I'm like coming in knowing that I know nothing and that I want to learn everything I can before I end up in a situation that I'm not prepared for. Like I really like being prepared. It's one of the reasons why I like stand up is because I'm like by the time I'm doing an hour long show, I've been working on that material for a really long time. I've worked on it. I know it's going to work. There's not a lot of guesswork involved in stand up. When you are do a joke on stage, you know like the percentage of times that the joke works. <laughs> like you know what you're getting into and um so I think like that's just sort of like I I think I approach my creative work slightly differently than she does because she's just so confident and it's worked out so well because she does have such a clear vision and she's she's also like more organized than I am <laughs> um, but uh, I I don't know if I. I if I think about things in the same way that she does. I think part of that is like she's the oldest of three. I'm the youngest of three. Like she's had to be in charge of a lot of stuff and I've never had to be in charge of anything. Yeah. I do not trust my own authority as much, I think, because I'm like, oh, no, I have I've like always been like, oh, I have a lot to learn from other people. And for her, she's just sort of like, no one is going to make this easier for me. I'm just going to have to blaze this trail on my own. And she has and she's done it really beautifully. But I think it I, I think in the times that we have talked about our careers, it's like we talk about it. We think about it so differently that it's sort of like there actually isn't as much overlap as you would expect. Like we work in different mediums. We work in different ways. And I remember when she she would talk to me sometimes about when she would direct TV projects. And I'd be like, oh, my God, that is not how I do things.
1: We were talking about the when this happened, the, the st- story, back to the story, and the trainer, and you were so mad uh, at yeah. him. <laughs> you were so mad at him. I don't know why you put it that way. But you, justifiably. Yeah. Um, but you had stand-up, right? Like, yeah. Are you, you know, in times, I mean, you haven't, like, in so much as you haven't had it since, like, in terms of stand-up being a useful medium for certain things, what do you— sort of miss or what are you sort of like what is the feeling that you hope will make you sort of bring you back to doing Yeah.
0: Are there things where I feel like pent up like I can't I can't do anything with this feeling? Yeah. I do try and like weaponize my feelings toward my own productivity to the amount that I can where I'm like I just started keeping a list of like just things that motivate me to write and like one of the things on that list is like just think about how many scripts Max Landis has finished. (gasps) And honestly, I wrote 20 pages thinking about sure. that the other day. Like, there are ways, like, even if I'm not like, I'm I'm going to tell everyone this story. There are ways to turn experiences like that into work that will allow me to feel like I'm being the person that I want to be and doing what I want to do. And whatever's pissing me off about this thing, I have an outlet for it. And um, I do still have my podcast where I can talk about stuff like that and I do feel like I am capable of making whatever I want with the inspiration that comes at me whether it's stand up or whether it's something else like I'm not putting everything into a TV script yeah. like but yeah I I I I haven't really noticed feeling like Yeah a, a story like that has happened and i need to talk about it on stage
1: if you if if i don't know how i would do this but let's say some sort of time machine existed where uh-huh. the only thing that time machine did was to tell me the information that you didn't do stand-up ever again oh god what how do you feel about that everything your yeah. life is happy whatever and like obviously there's all ge- you know like the world <laughs> exists enough that I'm you not did not dead. do stand-up yeah in it.
0: I, w- I just have to trust that there's a reason why. Yeah. I don't, I don't like right now the way I picture the rest of my life going is that like I do do stand up again at some point and I, f- I find the time, I find something that I want to say on stage and, and that happens. But the th- one thing I've learned from my career so far is that like the ideas I form about what my life is supposed to look like. The longer I live, the more informed I get. And so I shouldn't hold on to any ideas about that that were formed by someone with less information than I have (laughs) now. Um, And so like when I first started writing for TV, I didn't think that it was going to be a serious part of my life. I was like, I am a stand up. Everything is in service of stand up. I don't know what I would have to gain from that. And then I tried it and I loved it. And then I tried acting and I didn't love it as much as writing. (laughs) So I was like, okay, I tried it. I was open to it. And now I want to like go back to writing more full time. So I'm trying to be as humble as I can about what I know about what will make me happy in this world and in this life. And I think honestly part of it is like I'm married now. I have a house. Like I have things that make me want to be at home. Um, which is, you know, in some ways super boring and maybe that'll wear off and I'll be like, I need to get the fuck out of this house at some point and do stand up again. But yeah, if if I found out that I never did stand up again, I think I'd be sad. I think I'd be sad if that was the life that I ended up with. But I also trust that I'm going to follow what makes me feel happy and fulfilled. And so that if I did end up deciding never to do it again or that it would be for a pretty good reason.
1: Do you have a feeling about if, th- if this was then the last stand up set you'd did or there's the legacy <laughs> of it? I can imagine my
0: cordon set Yeah oh yeah it's like it's like yeah. this is what
1: I've left behind
0: Yeah this is what what I've left behind I mean I feel so so proud of what I put out Yeah and I do feel like it was a true representation of what I what I wanted to say and I put so much work into it and like I didn't compromise on anything and it was it was so much like this is exactly how I want it to be. I feel really good about that. I hope that I change enough as a person that there will be a time when that feels outdated and I will feel like I need to get back up on stage and talk about the stuff I've been going through and who I am now and what's different. I think I just need a little bit more time to sort of process it first. I think like... When I get on stage and I work on an hour, it's because I have entered a new phase in my life and I'm processing that and talking about it and hopefully have something to offer. But I also am aware that like there are things about my life that are a little redundant to what other people are saying and I don't want to get up and say things just so that I'm the one saying it like if there are other people saying it better or in a more interesting (laughs) way or like with a more interesting valuable perspective that we need I like want there to be room for that I don't and I know there's room for a ton of us up there but if I get up on stage I want it to be because something I have something to say that no one else can say and and I I always want to approach it like that
1: yeah (laughs)
2: <laughs>
1: uh, so that sound means it's time for our final segment which is a laughing round it's like a lightning round but because it's comedy it's a laughing round okay <laughs> so uh, these are shorter questions do you have a joke joke a sh- street joke you like favorite regular joke joke <laughs>
0: Um, When I was a a high school debater, um, we used to have to get up really early in the morning, and we were always like really, really groggy at tournaments, and we used to play this game to sort of get our energy up. And um, it was really stupid where we would sing this song called, I'm alive, awake, alert, enthusiastic. I'm alive, awake, alert, enthusiastic. I'm alive, awake, alert. I'm alert, awake, alive. I'm alive, awake, alert, enthusiastic. Joke! And uh, someone would shout joke and point at someone, and they had to tell a joke on the spot. And then as soon as the joke was over, you'd sing the song again, yeah. and whoever just told the joke would point at someone else in the circle and yell, joke. And so I'm always part, like, I always, I was like, I need to know the joke that I'm going to say yeah. when that happens. And so whenever anyone's like, do you have a street joke? I'm like, I always say the same one, because it's the same one I would do when people would point at me, which was, uh, what do you call a fish with a lot of eyes? What? A fish.
1: Oh, interesting. I know that joke as, what do you call a fish with no eyes? A fish. Yeah. It's an, I've never heard of the... I submerg- think it's
0: more fun to say it as fish. Because then you can just let it go on as long as you want. No, It's definitely. a little bit
1: of dealer's choice. <laughs> is there a joke uh, you wish you could steal, but in a way in which no one would know? And also, it's it's like another dimension where it's the same exact life, but you have this person's I joke. I have
0: this person's joke. Oh, God. John Mulaney's joke about writing happy birthday on a banner. <laughs> because it is one of those things where, like... It's such a universal experience that it also feels like he's like reaching into my heart when he tells it where it's just sort of like, oh, fuck you. That's such a big part of my life. And I didn't even (laughs) realize it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, man, that's it's such a good joke. And it's the perfect take on it. And it's. It's so relatable and it's, I mean, yeah, his whole act, obviously, sure. but, but that joke in particular, just always struck me as like, God damn it.
2: We've <laughs> all made a happy birthday sign. You get that poster board up and you're like, I don't need to trace it. I know how big letters should be. To begin with, a big-ass H! (laughs) Followed by a big-ass A, and oh, no. Oh, God. Okay, all right, real skinny P with a high hump, with a high hump, and then we'll put the second P below the hump of that first P, sort of like a motorcycle sidecar situation. And now I have no room for the Y, so I'll do a kind of curled-up noodle Y. Block letters and cursive look good together. And then you go to write birthday and you totally forget the lesson you just learned with happy. You're like, "Yeah, but the past is the past." Big ass B. Surely more letters will fit in the same space.
1: Is there a joke that made it to a show that you wrote, wrote for, write for, rid, written for that you're most proud of getting in?
0: Uh, that made it to air. <laughs> oh god. Uh, well, I, I I recently wrote on um, the uh, children's hospital spinoff, Medical Police, which uh, after writing on Barry was like quite a palate cleanser because it's I went from writing on Barry, which is actually a pretty serious show to Medical Police, which is maybe the stupidest thing I've ever worked on, which was super fun. Um, and my episode has a sex scene in it. And I had never written a sex scene before. And I wa- I got to see it recently. And. A lot of it is exactly as I wrote it yeah. in the in the sex scene in particular and the stuff leading up to it. Really stupid stuff that they say to each other getting ready. <sighs> this is such a spoiler. But anyway, I, so I'm super, super excited for that to come out. I think it comes out in January. And that was one thing where I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this made it in. But in terms of like something that um, people would actually will actually see or ha- may, might have actually seen already. Um I'm trying to think of thing. I, I know every time I watch Barry, I always pause it when a joke that I wrote got in and tell my husband, I'm like, I wrote that. I wrote that. It's hard to think of an, a particular example. Yeah. But there was one line where it was one of those things where like I, I pitched it in the room and it ended up in the script as is. And I was pretty happy, happy about it, where um, Stephen Root's character Fuchs is talking about how they should um, like hitch their wagon to this Chechen mobster and, like, what they stand to gain from it. And the wording that I pitched was, like, and we can just ride his hairy shoulders to the moon. And it was one of those things where I pitched a thing, like, is this funny? And then it killed in the room. And I was, like, oh, yeah, I'm funny. And then it stayed in the script, and I was really happy about it. It was one of those things where I, maybe at the table read it kind of hurt the actor's feelings. I don't know. But... Uh, <laughs> But it was just one of those things where I was like, I don't think we ever I've ever seen his shoulders. Yeah. It's just one of those things where you look at him and you're like, oh, this guy might have hairy shoulders. And I, I like hairy shoulders. It wasn't a dig. It was just like, this is just like a weird specific thing to yeah. say.
1: Anyway. Do you have a favorite Fraser joke or the joke that comes to mind when I ask that question? So you don't have to <laughs> pick between all your um, beliefs.
0: There are there are a lot of Frasier jokes that I like. My favorite episode of Frasier is Radio Wars, uh, which is, I believe, in season seven, which I will argue is the best season of Frasier, where Frasier gets in this prank war with these shock jock DJs who keep pranking him played by John Ennis and Brian Callen. It's a really funny episode top to bottom, but one of the things that I think is funniest about it, and it's hard to even put my finger on why this is funny, is like they start a thing called Fraser Crane's enormous ass contest where they like try and get people to take pictures of his big butt and there's something that i feel like we don't talk about men's butts enough on tv maybe that's why i think it's funny and i there's just something that's so like stupid and wholesome about it on a show like that that i really love but then there was also an episode that opened with like the aftermath of one of their disastrous dinner parties. And it was like a meta joke about Frasier, the show where it was like, you don't know what happened at the party, but from context clues, you know, it was a disaster. And anyway, that was another one where I was like, okay, the the cold open of the, that episode where they decide to not throw any more dinner parties together is perfect.
1: Do you have a joke that never worked, but uh, you tried a bunch of times, never worked at this point. You're like, I guess I'll never do it again. But you'll go to your grave being like, this is funny. You guys are wrong.
0: <laughs> well, I think I might have. I think it's on the album. It's on the special. I put it in even though it never worked the way I wanted it to, um, which was uh, that I talked about. And this was before I ended up getting married, uh, because like, long story short, I got married for health insurance. It was like I wasn't planning on it. We weren't going to do it. All of a sudden we needed to. And 10 days later, we got married. Um but so, in the joke, I talk about never wanting to get married and like how sort of anticlimactic it feels to be like, to just look around and realize you're there. And I call it unceremonious. And I say, like, it's literally unceremonious. And it's like, I think that's so clever because there was no ceremony. <laughs> yes, yes, that's yes, what yes. the word unceremonious means. I don't think it's actually funny. It's just an apt word, but n- it never got a laugh. And I'm like, maybe it doesn't deserve a laugh. But also, I want to keep saying it. I want people to understand the meaning here and i just i was so stubborn about it that i was like i'm fucking i'm putting it on the album like i like it that's for me it's not for you very rarely do i do that (laughs) very rarely is there something where i'm like i'm gonna keep saying it when it doesn't get a laugh but uh that was one of them
1: cool thank you this was great
0: thanks for having me no
1: problem that's it for another episode of good one emily heller's ice thickeners is available on comedy central's youtube channel her album Pasta is available through Kill Rock Stars on Bandcamp, and an abridged version is available wherever you stream comedy albums. Follow Emily on social media at Mr. Emily Heller. Good one is produced by Mike Commentate with production assistance from Marissa Milnick. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them. What the heck? You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one.
0: That was a HeadGum Podcast.